Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. academic calling Rob Reich, Mehran Sahami, and Jeremy M. Weinstein. Professors Reich, Sahami, and Weinstein all, st- all teach at Stanford University, all teach at Stanford University, and together they teach one of the most popular courses at Stanford, Ethics, Public Policy, and Technological Change. Now, they've written System Error, in which they address pressing questions that emerge with rapid technological advances. Will algorithms make hiring decisions, and should they? Does the rise of hate speech on social media change the way we ought to think about free speech? How much privacy do we really have from big tech companies? They explore these questions and more in the book, and we were thrilled to get the opportunity to sit down with all three for a discussion. All right, so joining us on our podcast today, we have three Stanford professors. We have Rob Reich, Mehran Sahami, and Jeremy Weinstein, and they are the authors of System Error. And thank you so much, all three of you, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you. Yeah, great to be here. We're happy to have you. Um, So to start us off, before we talk about the book, uh, the three of you teach a course at Stanford, um, Ethics, Public Policy, and Technological Change. Can you tell us a little bit about that course? Sure. Well, the, the premise of the course is that we need three different lenses fully to grasp and understand the extraordinary power of of big tech um, or in general, the digital revolution. Um, I, as the philosopher, bring an ethical lens to bear on a set of questions. Jeremy has experience as a policymaker at the highest levels in Washington, DC, and is a social scientist of of the first rank. And Mehran is the a legend in the computer science department at Stanford and has been teaching for the past decade the introduction to computer science course. So we combine a, an ethical lens, a, a policy lens, and a technical lens. It's the only course that we're aware of on campus where students are asked to do technical assignments, a policy memo, and a philosophy paper all in the same class. And the goal is to try to bring about a kind of culture shift on campus. So that rather than having an ethics class as a check mark about your preparation for thinking about the power you'll exercise as a technologist or as a policymaker, you bring it together into one class and you invite people to consider how the great power of technologists also brings about a set of social and ethical considerations that are the business of the technologists, as well as policymakers, as well as the users of technology, and then, of course, all of us as citizens. So sort of building that sense of ethics into the technologists before they go into the world, as opposed to trying to teach them on the job. Right. That's absolutely a part of it, but I think it's important to keep in mind that the work of governing a society affected by technology isn't only the work of technologists. And so in, in designing this course, obviously one critical audience is the set of students who are studying computer science and other technical fields, because we want them to understand that they are making a set of value judgments as they code and build things, that there are values encoded in what they build and that the values that they choose to prioritize 
may be the same or different than values that other people hold. At the same time, we wanna make sure that non-technical uh, audiences at Stanford, social scientists, people in the humanities, people in other fields, understand that there is a role for them and a voice for them as well in governing a society impacted by technology. But to do so, you need to understand where and how those decisions are being made. You need to understand what values are being encoded in the technology and where it is that you can exercise your voice. I think one way to maybe think about that evolution too is for the past 30 years, for example, Stanford had a course on computer science and ethics, like many universities actually do. And many of those courses are often focused on the individual, on the technologist, in terms of what they might do on the job, the particular situations they might encounter, how they might think about issues of, say, licensing in the field or codes of ethics. And what I think in terms of that broader evolution is if you look at sort of the evolution of technology, it moved from something that were apps people used on their, say, their own computer, their, you know, thick client apps like Microsoft Office, to a place where there's much more social impact of computing, which we see more broadly. And in that same sense, the education around what are the ethical issues in computing becomes a much more of a political and social issue as opposed to just an individual issue. So we think what this class captures and sort of what's also reflected in the book is the evolution of that thinking from the individual to a broader societal level. Um, so in the book, you talk about the values that technologists should have, do have, um, and it seems like right now, technology, Silicon Valley is very much driven by, it seems like two things, optimization and profit. And now we've seen these be incredible motivators for really impressive developments in technology over the past few decades. Um, but do you think these values, should they be goals at all? Do they have a place in technology? Should we be trying to get that out of technology? What, what do you think about that? I think part of the issue there is understanding not that optimization in itself is a good or bad thing, but it's a means to getting to some end. And one of the things we talk about a lot in the book are what are the ends and how are they measured? And one of the things technologists often want to have is they want to have some numerical quantity that they can measure in a system so they can actually optimize it over time as they're gathering more data. The problem with that is some of the things that are easy to measure that you can quantify and stick into that system to optimize are just proxies, in some cases, very poor proxies for the things you actually care about. Right, a classic example of this is Facebook saying they want people to be able to be more connected engage in, and engage in the platform. Well, how do you actually measure connectedness, right? That's a very deep concept. The way it often gets measured as a poor proxy is how often are people clicking on things? How much time are they spending on the platform? And when you optimize for those kinds of things like the number of articles someone clicks on or the number of postings that they like, you end up optimizing for a metric that taken to scale and an extreme gets people to engage in behavior and engage with content that perhaps is more titillating or happens to be you know, more uh, sensationalist than actually getting people connected at a meaningful level. And so that's part of the issue in the book is to think deeply about what is being measured and what you actually want to accomplish. So the optimization itself isn't a bad thing, but you need to be cognizant of what you're really optimizing. So Marilyn focused on, on the issue of optimization. So I wanna to come to the second part of your question, uh, which is about profit motives. And you know, the moment that we're at in society is one in which we have a real marriage of 
the engineers and what they're capable of developing with the financiers and those who are really interested in reaping uh, enormous profits out of these innovations. And part of what we draw attention to in the book is the particular orientation of the venture capital industry, which prizes scale, which prizes market dominance, and which encourages and incentivizes through its very structure and its approach to investment, uh, the development and rolling out and scaling of technologies long before we're in a position to really understand anything about their impacts uh, in the world. Contrast that perspective with, say, the words of Nicole Wong, who was formerly of major tech companies and then the deputy chief technology officer of the United States, who has called for a slow food movement for tech, uh, which is to basically say, as we develop new technologies, we need to experiment and adapt in a way that helps us learn about their effects before we scale these technologies and the effects, especially unintended and harmful effects, are felt by society writ large. I'm gonna add one tiny thing here as the, the philosopher of the lot. Uh, on optimization, um, there's obvious appeal in certain respects to the, the, the deployment of an optimization mindset for certain kinds of technical problems. But when that optimization mindset is, is applied to, to life as a whole, um, um, you know, a kind of orientation that we describe in the book is everything in life is an optimization problem. Um, that leads, I think, to a misunderstanding about what democracy itself is good for. So democracy, we describe in the book, is a certain type of technological design that gives a fair way of refereeing um, the different preferences and values and views of citizens in a society. Um, democracy is not meant to optimize particular outcomes. It's meant to be a fair process for handling contestation. And when technologists with an optimization mindset complain about democracy as being deeply inefficient or broken, there are certain respects, of course, in which our current democracy is dysfunctional, but it's not that it's meant in the first place to be an optimizing apparatus. And so it's important to understand that we wanna lift up the, the goals and the merit of democratic institutions, um, our own voices as citizens in that entire process, in a way in which we aren't aiming in the first place to optimize at all. There was, um, to your point there, there was a quote you had at the end of chapter one that someone said that, that really stuck with me. Um, they said, democracy is too slow and it holds science back. And it feels very like, whoa. Um, and it feels like there is this sort of battle between um, on the one hand, the democratic power that technology can give citizens, and on the other hand, the way that technologists can use it to actually subvert technology. Yeah. For example, you mentioned in the book, there was um, a proposal in California to um, give more rights to rideshare drivers, and Lyft and Uber were able to actually use their apps, use their reach to basically get right. that shut down. On the, on the first point, I'd make a quick you know, note here that, that in the long-standing debates about democracy and other alternative ways of organizing society, this goes back to Plato, we talk about this in the book, you know, Plato thought that philosophers should be the philosopher kings. You know, we look to the smartest to govern us because they can make the best choices for us. It's no longer philosophers who occupy the top dog position in our modern society. It's, it's the scientists and technologists, but it's the same impulse 
well, you know, um, democracy holds science back or, or um, the technological frontier, if only we could advance it as quickly as possible, it's to put the, the technocrats in charge of society. And that's essentially to do away with democracy and to forget what democracy is good for. Uh, and that entire dynamic is a longstanding one. Experts have a role to play in democracy, but democracy is first and foremost about what we do together as citizens, each of us equal in moral standing and political standing to one another in that entire process. And to just provide one little data point on that story, its continuation is that judges in the California Supreme Court actually just struck down Prop 22 as unconstitutional. So it shows the power of democracy in the face of what the technocrats might otherwise want. So since we're talking about democracy, you do talk in the book about free speech and you sort of pose this question um, that I wanna address to you. You mentioned how in the past, free speech wasn't really an issue because you know if somebody wants to go in the street corner and yell out crazy ideas, how many people are really gonna hear them? How much reach do they have there? But the internet changes that. So does that change how free speech ought to work? I'll give a quick response to that. The, the example you just gave, it, we use in order to try to communicate that we, that we live in a, in a fundamentally different environment when we have a digitally mediated way of communicating with each other. Um, in an analog world, think about the broadest reach you could have um, by barking on the street corner, by showing up at the subway stop, by going on the town, the town square and saying something, or even if you had a bunch of money, like buying a newspaper and taking an advertisement out or, or something like that. Um, these days, you can suddenly, every single one of us, if you can make some content go viral, um, reach thousands or millions of people. And what we now have is a, is a problem of superabundance of content, uh, video, audio, and, and text in a way that we have to rely on a search algorithm um, to find what we want online, or we need an algorithm on the social media platforms to uprank and downrank things that are supposedly relevant to us. So that background circumstance of superabundance changes the landscape of how it is our communication infrastructure works and how it is our informational ecosystem is either healthy or unhealthy. Viral content that's hate speech or misinformation, if it's someone barking on the street corner, not that much of a worry, but at a scale that these platforms now allow, it's a different kind of story. And so that's why we say in the book, there's a real value tension between upholding freedom of expression but then also protecting the dignity of individuals that can be violated through hate speech. And then the values of democracy that rely on an informationally healthy ecosystem in which misinformation and disinformation isn't a constant pollution within it. And I think in the book, you actually make um, sort of the reverse argument that um, hate speech is actually in a way a violation of the free speech of its targets because it can drive them from that platform that they have. Yeah, the kind of wonky way to put this is that we should have we should we should have as ordinary citizens an expectation of what you could call equal communicative liberty or equal access to use communicative tools. And we're all familiar if you've been online with people who say something and effectively get driven off the platform because they're just um, deluged with the torrent of hateful speech. 
And it's the a kind of mob mentality that then drives you off of having the chance to communicate um, in a way that you would like. And so hate speech does come into conflict in that respect with the expectations of freedom of speech. Maybe the one thing I'd add to what Rob said is that you know, we, we quote our Stanford colleague, Renee DeResta, in drawing this distinction between freedom of speech and freedom of reach. And we make the argument that uh, not no one is entitled to freedom of reach. No one is entitled to the amplification of what they say uh, to millions and billions of people. And we wholly respect the role of companies uh, in making choices about uh, their own content moderation guidelines, um, and, and figuring out what kind of community they build. Um, and so while we come down strongly in support of the protection of freedom of speech and laws that might restrict that freedom of speech, we, we explore those issues and believe that even in the moment that we're in, this commitment to freedom of speech that's been a bedrock of American life and more broadly is something that needs to be protected, we recognize that we're at a new moment when it comes to the moderation of speech and efforts to basically constrain in various ways the freedom of reach. And we think that's wholly appropriate. And the moment that we're at is a negotiation between companies that are building out content and community moderation standards and government that's looking at the harmful consequences of amplified hate speech or amplified misinformation and disinformation to arrive at a new regulatory structure that's a combination of what companies do themselves and a set of guardrails that come from government writ large to ensure that some of these other things that we value alongside free speech, including people's individual dignity, their protection from violence and hate, um, but also our ability to have a healthy democratic ecosystem for deliberation and informing ourselves uh, are protected at the same time. Absolutely. Um... One thing I thought of when I was reading that section, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it, um, is that these issues that cause these hate speech problems, um, specifically things like doxing, um, are also the same reasons that we've had these long overdue moments of accountability, such as the Me Too movement, the conviction of Derek Chauvin. Um, so it is a, you know, it's a give and take there. Uh, that's true. And especially if you see a continuum between physical harms, um, Derek Chauvin, the Me Too movement, especially if what we're talking about is sexual assault, and then the psychological harm that can be um, um, the natural byproduct of hate speech and a, and a, toxic, a toxic information environment. I want to talk a little bit about um, data mining, which you mentioned in the book, which is obviously a huge privacy issue here. Um, so is there a difference between a company knowing, you know, my personal information, my birthday, my medical records, things like that, and them knowing that I looked up where to get tacos last night? Is that something on me to individually decide, it, you know, what my level of comfort is there? Or there, are there, should we be worried about all of that? One example to think about it is, you know, when you talk about the situation where you're getting tacos, you might think, well, it's innocuous, right? You go to the restaurant, you get tacos, the, you know, waiter or waitress knows what you order, the people around you can see what you order, it's not a big deal, right? So why do I really care? 
But the thing that technology gives you is the power to aggregate and the power to scale. So it's not just about that one meal you had, but now imagine aggregating every meal you had, every product you bought, every interaction you had online. Suddenly the amount of information you have from a person, and you could argue, you know, each one of these individual bits in some sense might be a public piece of information, but it's aggregation at some point crosses a line where you invade someone's privacy. You've now created a profile that is so powerful and so complete, especially through the kind of inferences you can do about what they might be interested in, what they would be likely to engage in, that it crosses a line that most people feel comfortable with. And that's part of what we talk about the power of data mining in the book is what makes this unique is about its scale and about the new algorithms that are invented that can do sort of inferences about people to identify things that they may not even be fully conscious about themselves. So yeah, there's a lot of things we can do, like we can set our privacy settings and apps, or we can set incognito mode in searches. But the real question is, is this just an entirely personal matter, right? Is it just something that the company say, you have these levers in your control, you should use those levers. And the argument we make, and we use an example of this in the book, is it's kind of like the roadway system, right? You, if you were to tell people, you know what, there's just some streets out there, be careful when you drive. It would be a pretty horrific experience in terms of accidents because there's no regulations. So what do we have? We have lanes, we have stoplights, we have speed limits, we have all kinds of regulation that make it safer for everyone to drive. You still have personal choice as to whether or not you want to drive, what kind of car you want to drive, how fast you want to go, how careful you want to be on the roadway. But that's done in a larger system that's put on guardrails to make everyone more safe. And so that's the argument we make around technology is what we need is that set of guardrails through regulation to make everyone safer. And you still have your personal choices within that framework. One thing I'd add is that, you know, we draw attention to the fact that as a society, we've imposed enormous kind of oversight and constraints on the public sector's access to our personal data. Whereas we've left a wild west in place when it comes to the private sector's access to our personal data. And so people can go through the thought exercise of how might government use personal information that I protect, you know, my own health status, um, you know, issues about, you know, my performance in school. We have laws in place that really protect your health information and your educational record from potential misuse. And of course, we have real constraints on our police state and our national security state and what kind of information they can have access to. But for the last 20 years, we've had almost no constraints on what the private sector can access and the ways in which the private sector can aggregate and learn from data. We've had a very simple notice and consent framework in place that all of us are familiar with. In order to use an app, you click through you know, innumerable pages of legalese and difficult to understand content, and then you hit okay and you can access the app and you've signed away in some sense, all of your rights to your data. And I think part of what needs to happen is people need to come to terms with what kind of power that is investing in the private sector, what the private sector and these companies are able to learn about us and how they use that data to shape and influence what we care about, what we buy, how we spend our time, and ultimately, as people, we can see with Cambridge Analytica and other scandal-making moments, as people are becoming aware of that power that's invested in unaccountable corporate actors, the level of discomfort has gone through the roof. And that's why we're at a moment and a window for policy change. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it feels like we are at this, um, this awkward moment where, 
you know, so many more people are aware of these privacy issues, especially with um, Snowden, Cambridge Analytica, all these things bringing that to the forefront. Um, and people are more cognizant of that. But at the same time, you know, these apps, this technology, all these things have made our lives a lot more convenient and in some ways even safer in a lot of ways, um, thinking about the contact tracing apps with COVID-19. So on an individual level, it feels like it's a tough trade-off. And how do you how do you balance the conveniences that these apps bring with you know the potential dangers to privacy? So you can still have convenience. I think there's a false dichotomy that says we wouldn't have convenience if we had some other guardrails in place. So the part of the point is right now we count on in some sense, the good graces of these companies to not do something more nefarious with our data. Because when they lay out the terms of service, as Jeremy was talking about, most people don't even read them. They just agree to it. And if you actually read some of the terms of service, some of them are pretty onerous in terms of what kind of rights you're giving up to your own data. You know, the pictures, for example, that you post online, what they might be used for. And so part of the notion there is if there are certain things that we would like to have Right, that when we still use our apps, you can still use them in the same way, but we would like to have particular guardrails in place that guarantees that our data can't be used in particular ways. That's the place where we can't just count on the companies to say, trust us. Because even if they say that now, there can be changes in companies, there can be changes in executives, and they can make different decisions. So unless we actually have some sort of regulatory framework to say there are things that are out of bounds, we don't have any guarantee. So do you think there's anything that we can do on an individual level until that happens? Sure, um, there's always something we can do on an individual level. And, and we give a couple of examples in the book for people who are you know, say just ordinary users of, of all the wondrous tools, products, devices that um, so many of us use on a daily basis from things like changing the privacy settings um, um, so that they reflect your, your considered choices rather than accepting the default settings. Um, if you're really concerned, even deleting an app or two on the, on, on the phone. But at the end of the day, we argue that it's a mistake to think that the problems of big tech can ever meaningfully be confronted by a set of individual choices at the user level alone. Um, uh, for example, uh, it, the idea that if you don't like what Facebook or Twitter, or, you know, TikTok are doing to our information ecosystem, then you can just delete the app from your phone um, is kind of like saying something like, if you don't like the car that you can afford or the speed limits or the road bumps or the stop signs in your neighborhood, then you can just stop driving, of course, as well. It's, you're free to just refuse to do that. That's not a meaningful way of can, you know, giving a person a set of choices. As we look to a set of collective choices that come in the form of policymaking that set the, the fair rules of the roadway that help protect the safety as well as the efficiency of getting around. And that's what we think is needed in the realm of big tech at the moment, a set of collective choices that also recognize the power that any one of us has in, as an individual. So I feel like we could keep going on about this all day, um, but I do wanna end with one more question I have for each of you individually. Um, and this is a question that we ask all of the guests on the podcast. Um, since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Whoever wants to go first. 
Well, one teacher that I bring up who is both a great teacher, but also a great mentor, and I think that's what really had lasting impact, um, was a professor at Stanford named Eric Roberts, who actually was one of the instructors for a long time of the ethics and CS class at Stanford, you know, back since the 90s. And uh, the things that he had in mind was he was really a gifted teacher to begin with, but I think that he saw the broader perspectives of technology very early on and worked to instill that notion in the students that he taught and you know, mentor them along so that they could have greater impact after they graduate. I had two teachers in high school uh, um, that, that were transformative for me. One of them was a history teacher who just took a sort of interest in, in me outside of the context of the class. And at one point took me aside after school and said, I'm gonna give you a book and, and you don't have to read it, but if you're interested, do read it. But I'm gonna ask you a favor. Don't tell your parents that I gave you this book. And um, it, was a, it was a book uh, uh, called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas about American politics. That, you know, if, you, you know, if you know the book, you know why he didn't want my parents to know. A second high school teacher, I was having a conversation with him after class. I grew up in an environment where no one I knew was a professor. No one I knew was a real, thought, thought of him or herself as engaged in the world of ideas. And I was asking this, uh, this teacher of mine, you know, you're always like, even in the period when you're not teaching, you're always reading some book. You're, you're always like, you've got notes and stuff everywhere on your desk. Like, when do you have fun? And he said, Rob, reading about history is fun. This is, this is what I'd like to do. And I realized actually I'm kind of like that too, it's fun. So I, I didn't need to make a distinction between thinking or thinking about ideas and thinking that I wasn't having a good time. I love questions like this because I really believe in the power of, of teachers and these kind of critical moments that are often lost on the teachers themselves, but that really stick with the students and are transformative kind of moments of pivot in their, in their lives. Um, I went to Swarthmore as an undergraduate and you know, what Swarthmore is known for is, is you know, the abandonment of fun in the traditional sense that Rob described and the embrace of fun in the non-traditional bookish sense that Rob described. Uh, that is, you know, doing well at Swarthmore and having fun means being in the library on Friday night. And um, I was a political science and economics student at Swarthmore. And uh, I remember distinctively a, a class my senior year that was co-taught by uh, Professor Ken Sharp uh, and Professor Jim Kurth, two political scientists. And I was kind of a pretty empirically oriented guy. Rob described me as the social scientist and the policymaker in the crew. Um, but this was a class where Ken Sharp in particular pushed us to take loaded normative positions, to engage in the kind of ethical back and forth and to reach back into political philosophy to think about how people had weighed really challenging and weighty issues about what a good life is and how society should be governed um, at the same time that we were thinking about how American democracy worked or how the international system functioned. Um, and so for me, even this course is a return to that marriage of thinking hard about the normative and ethical questions while also engaging very much in the empirical world in which we inhabit. Uh, and I trace it very much back to those kinds of intellectual exchanges in college. That's great. I love all those answers. Um, thank you, the three of you, so much for a lovely conversation today. Thanks. Perfectly timed. Right? <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.